Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are things? What have you been up to? Hi, Thea. Uh, things are all right. I've been up to, you know, the usual look, bit of looking at plants, bit of <laughs> reading about things. Plants? Um, uh, yes, a bit about plants. Fin- finished reading about mushrooms, and now I just bore everybody with um, with amazing facts about mushrooms. Uh, and mycelium reading about dogs reading about buddhism Ooh. not necessarily together they're probably in a way they are quite buddhist aren't they dogs because they're very present well my dog is yeah <laughs> I mean, most, most, <laughs> most of them are like they're probably not like dwelling on the past too much they've got um useful things they can teach us of course and i've just started reading uh sounds wild and broken by david george haskell which is about the sounds that we will lose in the world as things become extinct so Ooh. i've just started that and it's uh, well yes so interesting what sorts of sounds well i mean an, an obvious one is, is particular sorts of bird song if the birds yeah. don't uh, exist anymore uh, and all sorts of sounds, actually. I mean, bugs and things as well. I've read very little of it yet, so I, I cannot sound in any way expert on it. But, you know, as we lose biodiversity, we lose every element of mm. of, of them. And sound is a really important one. Mm, there was a story on the radio, um, I think it was last year, um, about a particular bird in, I think it was in Australia, that has lost its song. So there are very few of these birds left. It's the something or other something honey eater, something like that. Um, and they there are very few of them left. And because there are so few of them, they can't hear each other singing. So they can't learn how to sing their songs, causing all sorts of terrible problems in terms of meeting and, and mating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it must have a huge effect, doesn't it? Mm, and so they've, they've set up these little almost like language schools where in uh, they have some of these birds in captivity and uh, they're playing them recordings of their song. What, they're playing the wild birds recordings of the captive birds? That's a good idea. To teach them how to, how to sing, how they should sing. 
Yeah. And they'll probably, they'll sound like the birds. I don't know if, if they will have an accent or a particular call and they'll be like, hey, yeah. you sound like a bird in a zoo. And they'll be like, no, yeah. you're not. <laughs> I, heard a, I read a brilliant thing very briefly last week about um, orangutans, I think it is. The young ones, they use slang in their calls. No They've way. Like, yeah, and it because the older ones don't use it. The older ones are going absolutely ridiculous. What does that mean? What do you mean whatever. <laughs> um, and the younger ones use it, particular, and, and they catch on. And then it, in, and then I think it can spread to other communities. But again, it's the kids that use it. Isn't that good? Yeah. And is there a, a theory about you know, where where they've picked it up or how? Not that sure. Again, I, all I can tell you is the is the is the unexpert view, but it is really interesting, isn't it? That's so interesting. Well, we've covered a lot, not in a lot of depth, <laughs> but there you go. What have you been reading? So I've often said on this podcast that I don't reread books, haven't I? And I mean, largely because I'm so overwhelmed by how many unread books there there are. Um, mm. But I've sort of admitted to myself recently that that's always been a bit of a lie because <laughs> I quite often do reread, um, but mostly short stories. And so recently it's been Flannery O'Connor. So I had a weekend of, of Flannery O'Connor, the famous complete stories, which were published posthumously. A um, gothic weekend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I've had those and about 10 other things on the go, including the new issue of the Paris Review, which hit my doormat a couple of days ago. Oh, and I've just started the Ali Smith, um, the new Ali Smith novel, Companion oh, Piece. Oh, I want to read that. Can I, can I borrow yours when you read it? Which I, well, I will send it. It's a proof copy and its spine has disintegrated almost entirely. Oh. So if it still holds together, yes, I'll pop it in the post and, and you can you can share it. You can share in it with me. Oh. Or you could just wait for a finished copy. But yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why short stories seem to be an exception to my rule about not rereading. I, I wonder whether it's maybe, you know, like with poems, it's quite an intense experience, isn't it? You get a lot from a relatively quick re-immersion. Yeah, and it's it's less of you can dip in and out, can't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. I should probably also say uh, this episode of the podcast will be my last. Um, it will continue, of course. Podcast will in your hands, won't it? Well, it, all we can do is stagger on, Thea. <laughs> Nonsense. You and the wonderful Alex Clark will be taking the wheel. But yeah, I'm I'm off. I'm away uh, taking on new projects, I guess. So once more with feeling, let me tell you what we have coming up on this week's show. The Duty to Dissent will be joined by the critic N. Liang Kong to discuss Ai Weiwei's artistic rebellion against the Chinese state and the artist's new memoir, 1000 Years of Joys and Sorrows, the story of two lives, one nation, and a century of art under tyranny. But first, we're travelling north. We're not quite sure how far. No map can specify exactly, and we're not really sure which way up to hold it anyway. But we're aiming to cross into the extreme north, whose barely populated landscapes, somewhere between the real and the imaginary, have long been something of a shorthand for other things. As our writer Cal Flynn puts it this week, reviewing a book by the German writer Bernd Brunner, The white expanse of the snow-spread plateau offers a blank canvas on which to project hopes, dreams and neuroses. Perhaps the strangest thing about the extreme north is that everyone thinks they know what it is and what it stands for, but no one really knows where it is. Cal Flynn, the author most recently of Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape, has a clearer sense of these places than many of us, so I am pleased to say she is with us now to take us by the hand. Hello, Cal. Hello, thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours. 
Now, I say you have a clearer sense than most of us because you've made a trip yourself, haven't you? You've you felt the pull of the far north and you've, you've kind of let it take you. Yeah, that's right. I had a, a period in my life when, uh, I don't know, I guess I just threw it all in and moved to the Arctic. So I moved to Scandinavian Arctic. This is the far north of Finland. I spent a winter season there uh, working at a husky kennels. So out with the sled dogs in all weathers really down to about minus 40 or just below. And it was just the most incredible, enervating experience. Yeah. So the, the far north, it really does hold like a important place on my mental map. How would you describe that feeling, you know, that desire to go north that you felt that led you to make that decision? What was it about the north? What were you visualising, I guess? And what, you know, what did you find when you when you did get there? I guess it was something to do with the, the extreme climate. That's what attracted me. You know, that it is a very beautiful place to go in summer as well. But what I was looking for was almost that sort of like taking your skin off cold, the the blizzards, the the deep snow, the amazing natural phenomenon that you get when you you know drop temperatures so much I'd never experienced anything like that before and I think that that's what I was looking for I was looking to sort of refine that sense of wonder with the world and by going somewhere completely alien that I'd never been before that really did sort of help me rediscover it and it was based probably not on very much it was more of an instinct than really based on any true knowledge of what the north would be like but it fulfilled all of my sort of expectations and more so it was yeah fantastic place I used the word pull before um, mm. to feel the pull of the north. And that sort of takes us into the realm of magnetism, uh, which which seems right. The book you're reviewing, um, Extreme North, A Cultural History by Bernd Brunner, is translated by Jefferson Chase. Um, and, and the book has some particularly good bits on early understandings of this pull, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I found absolutely charming is it talks about uh, people's understanding of, of what it did to magnets. This is before... Um, the use of the compass was sort of as widespread as it is today and before it was totally understood why and so before people had gone to the North Pole um, there was this sort of worry or, or, or sort of suggestion that perhaps what we now know to be the North Pole was actually some kind of giant magnetic rock or or perhaps even some kind of magnetic uh, mountain range that passed in the very very far off distance and so um, one or two people would write on maps you know don't go past the north coast of Norway because the sea is completely impassable due to the magnets and so there was a a kind of misunderstanding of of what this magnetic force was emanating from and I do think that that's it's it's quite magical to sort of imagine yourself back in a time when sort of magnets are lurking away in the dark just beyond our our circle of light I just think that's fantastic. It's a wonderful idea that there's just like a massive mountain that's a huge magnet which is drawing everything towards it I wonder if that's part of the the age-old attraction of it attraction I didn't do that on purpose but <laughs> yeah I wonder and if you get too close to you does you know everything metal sort of yeah, don't wear metal boots. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why it's so compelling really is because it kind of implies that we're made of something we are made of some matter that exists in a kind of tension with with this magnetic north you there's like a kind of symbiosis even with the north like there's something essential about this mutual attraction yes yes and I, I think the sense of things really not being known and and very simple things about the world being perhaps dangerous and ununderstandable. I think that is you know you have to sort of like think of understanding the world through that lens the danger and and the allure of it nonetheless almost like mermaid like 
Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, far northern or extreme northern territories, I think we'll come back to one way of potentially distinguishing between those two categories uh, in a bit. But these places have always been... Um, places where the imagination has run free. As a result, you say historical maps have contained many northern inaccuracies. Can you tell us about some of these? Yeah, sure. So um, for a long time, the maps were pretty confusing, really due to a result of there being a great confusion about what was up in the north. Um, There was a phantom island that, that sort of haunted these maps for really a long time, like centuries. Uh, the island of Frisland or Friesland, um, which was held to be to the south or the southwest of Iceland and was was thought to be really quite large. Um, and there's also, you know, the, on, on closer inspection, it turns out not to exist whatsoever. And there's also the idea of this Thule, the sort of Ultima Thule, the, the furthest north that, that you might go. Um, and this location was described very early on during the time of the ancient Greeks. And then it kept sort of metamorphizing and moving around the world because people kept wondering if they found it. So it was reported to be sort of a place where air and water and land all congealed into one, which I assume is a, a reference to ice, but it, it's not totally clear in the wording. And sometimes people have positioned it in the north of Norway. Sometimes people have said it's the Orkney Islands, which is where I am. Other people have placed it in Iceland. And these days, the name Thule survives as the Thule Air Base, which is an air base run by the US Space Force. I could also sort of imagine Grimes and Elon Musk maybe calling their next child Thule. <laughs> that would be a bit so of a I shame, I think. But anyway. A shame for the child, but yeah. They can call it what they want. <laughs> it can change it when it's legally allowed. Yeah. Um, there have been some especially dark twists in this tale, haven't there, in, in, in terms of the the purposes of the concept of the north or northernness has been has been uh, kind of repurposed to to serve yeah absolutely um this is this book is called extreme north a cultural history and always with cultural histories the, the question is you know whose culture bernd brunner is a german and so he's writing from a very specific standpoint in germany throughout the 19th century very early 20th century um the north and when we're talking about the north here they're really talking about nordic countries so sort of like norway sweden and so on um they're image of these countries and these peoples was very sort of purist they came to be held up as this kind of wonderful example of essentially the Aryan race what 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 was characterized as the Aryan race so their their blonde eyed blue eyes um their traditional way of life even their folk art all of this kept popping up in um German writings in racial science writings of that period and um Wagner's sort of popularized the the Norse gods um, in his ring cycle. So all of these things became huge in German culture around that time. And it was all sort of in a, a heady stew of this idea of racial purity and whether or not Germanic peoples and Nordic peoples were one and the same. So really kind of to the horror, I think, of of particularly Swedish and, and Norwegians, you know, they would complain about how, I guess this is cultural appropriation, you know, in in a earlier sense. Um, because they did not believe themselves to be the sort of or race, but certainly the Germans did. Um, it was a very sort of strange thing to happen, not really based on anything, but it, it was like a sort of cultural meme that, that passed around at that time and really was quite powerful. Mm, and, and because the, the, the concept has always been so baggy, it's allowed it to be uh, taken in, in, in any number of directions by any number of people for any number of reasons. Um, 
the bagginess of the concept is a source of some frustration, isn't it? I mean, it must have been quite weird for you as well, disorientating perhaps, uh, to read in the book about places that you really don't consider to be of the far north. Yes, that's right. I mean, I imagine this is probably the same to, to people who live in the in Denmark, for example, which is not particularly far south, far north, but is often characterized as being northern. Or if you're in the, the far south of, of Sweden or Norway, you're you're much further south than, than where I am now. And uh, there is a section in this book where it starts talking about um, Celtophilia and the mythological poet Ossian, um, who was who was made up. And uh, he was Scottish. And and this all felt to me a little bit confusing. I didn't quite see how it sat with the sort of rest of the book, because to me, none of this is is northern. You know, it's, it's actually further south than where I am. And where, where I am, I don't consider to be particularly far north. And I think that is sort of waving towards this sort of central conflict at the heart of the book, which is that, you know, not very many people can give a real sense of where the north begins and ends that's that's Bernd Brunner's point anyway he feels it to be a kind of amorphous concept um and I'm not sure I totally agree because I do think that there are sort of yeah I don't know not necessarily a hard start point although perhaps the Arctic Circle might be a good place to start that's some effort made towards having some kind of hard definition of what it means to be in the far north but um you know there there are major concrete physical changes the further you go north and I, I think that it's worth really interrogating the idea of what we mean by extreme north or high north when you're writing an entire book about it and and laying out a definition sort of towards the beginning of the book it's all so relative isn't it is is, is the problem and you can make it anywhere because you point out in your piece that lovely moment if you uh, have driven from you know down south in britain anywhere towards up north at one point on on the motorway they stop trying to define things and they it just there's a big <laughs> arrow that just says the north somewhere up that way it's all it's all up there and it's all in capital letters up. isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love that bit and 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 it starts happening pretty far south to be honest it's not you're not very far north when you start getting those those arrows no absolutely and i have to say if you're ever i don't know looking to buy things online i'm often uh you know, on, on buy and sell Facebook groups, that kind of thing. And people will say, it's in the north. And then I'll be like, oh, wonderful. And I'll reply to them. They'll be like, no, no, no. I mean, the north of England, of course. You know, so it is a, <laughs> yeah. a, a term that can be very confusing um, and and relative, as you say. But, you know, people who are in the the clear and obvious far north, um, I, I think, do self-identify as being northern peoples. And those are the people who have to kind of, on a daily basis, make calculations based on their northernness or whether that's the temperature or it's a lack of daylight or, you know, there, there are things that mark it out. So I think that that's what I was looking for in this book, this more sort of, you know, how can we move from the vague and somewhat, you know, amorphous concept of north and compare it to, something a little bit more concrete. I don't know, maybe that's an unfair thing to ask of a cultural history, but that's what I felt was missing there, maybe. Well, I mean, and there have been attempts to do precisely that, haven't haven't there? Because um, you mentioned the late Canadian geographer, Louis Edmond Hamelin, um, and that and that that's he takes a completely different approach. He, he takes the approach that Brunner is so resistant to of, of really attempting to pin to pin things down and to 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 come up with categories so that you can almost measure northernness. 
That's right. He had a number of um, continuums. So that might be latitude. That's that's where we get the Arctic Circle from. But it might also be based on, you know, like numbers of hours of daylight, ice cover, accessibility, because often places, especially in, for example, the north of Canada, might be very difficult to access um, either by boat or overland. You know, you've got to fly in and out. Um, so if you live in a place like that in the far north of Canada or in bits of Greenland, your day to day life is definitely very impacted on by your northernness. You know, it's very expensive to live there. Um, food in the shops uh, is very expensive. Getting to and from that place, very expensive and, and obviously dependent on weather. Um, so I think he's coming from a much more practical and pragmatic approach to this idea of Norris, probably because in Canada, unlike in Germany, where Bernd Brunner's from, they do actually have to sort of deal with these issues every day. And I, I, I would be quite interested, I suppose, to, to read uh, maybe a sort of analysis of concepts of Northerners from someone from Canada or, or from Sweden. You know, I think that would be very interesting because those are countries that have a, a continuum very much within the country itself. If you lived there, if you were, as you say, you're battling with the climate every day, it's a genuine question, like, have I got the right tyres on? Because otherwise I might slide down the road and into the sea or, you know, there's there's real jeopardy. Do you think, do you think it's probably a bit annoying for them dealing with these everyday realities to, to, to have people sort of being misty eyed about the romance <laughs> of the north and the blank space and how you can just wander about thinking deep thoughts? <laughs> I think... Very possibly. I mean, so many people who live there are, are very practical people, you know, they have to be. Um, and there is also, you know, an attraction to to living in a place where other people have romantic ideas about, you know, there is a sense of pride in that as well. So um, I think it's a mix. But mm-hmm. I do think, you know, if we if, if, we're, if we're writing sort of analysis about it, it's, it's important to at least understand the distinctions. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Because because as you say, if you're writing about, in fact, what is the middle of Scotland, in what sense that's not that's not the far north in any way. But it's only the far north if you come from Surrey or something, <laughs> which is fine. But you know, you've, you've as you say, you've got to kind of delineate at some point. And um, and if the far north is, is a place where you have to have real reckoning with with how to live day to day. As you say, the sunlight is a big deal as well, isn't it? Because there's some places where in the winter, you, there's just not very much daylight and that's very, very difficult. Yeah, so where I lived for that winter in Finland, I was about 300 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, which meant that we had, I think, roughly a month when there was no direct sunlight. Um, and that's really, I know, it's really amazing. In some ways, you just have to deal with it. And then in other ways, you can really admire it. You know, it brings with it all of these amazing skies that might be sort of unusual colours. And, um, you know, I, I interviewed the, um, well, Serena Fines, the sort of adventurer, explorer once about um, how he had made an attempt to get to the South Pole in an Antarctic winter. Um, and I asked him, you know, will you struggle with the darkness? And he was like, no, not really at all. You know, it's it's sort of all about the state of mind that you're in. You know, you get these amazing twilights, so you get these red skies. And because I spoke to him just before I went to to Finland, I think that really helped me sort of think about it in a different way and just just admire it and, and allow that to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, so it sounds like if 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 we're looking for um, a practical, concrete guide to to, to different experiences of, of of living in northern territories, uh, Bernd Brunner's book 
is not the book for us. So um, if we take it on its terms, on its own terms, it, you, mm. you liken it to a cabinet of curiosities, which is a nice way of putting it. And I think there is an image at the beginning of the book that that um, occasions that that comparison. But what you know, is there is there anything that you that you that you discovered in this cabinet of curiosities that really just really captured your captured your eye that really kind of got your your imagination going again yeah I mean you're you're right so he he starts the book actually almost kind of confronting this this lack of definition and and sort of setting up the idea of a compendium head-on by starting with the image of all worms um museum wormianium um which was you know a a cabinet of curiosities of things sort of gathered from the miscellaneous north they had a sort of narwhal task different types of um minerals um all sorts of things that had been handed to him i think sort of weapons spears and things that had been brought down from various um sort of first peoples from the far north and he's stored them together in a room um it doesn't exist anymore but there are images of it and that he starts with this as this sort of sense of this capacious definition of the north you know like everything that we find fascinating as a place so um you know it, it, it is you know a strong image and it's full of these sort of just little snippets that you can <laughs> drop into at parties. I think my my favourite thing I learned was about um, how before maps were sort of settled in form, quite often north would not be at the top of the page. It, it might drift around. Sometimes it would be east at the top of the page, for example, when during the, the era of the Crusades in Jerusalem, was sort of held to be like the main point on earth. Um, And in the Islamic world, um, often north would be at the bottom of the page. And even these tiny details, which of course makes makes perfect sense, I think I just find that sort of like a mind expanding. It's like sort of gesturing back at what we were talking about before, these ideas of of unknown mountains. You know, it's just anything that shakes our our understanding of the way the world works, I find really useful. That's why I'm so um, interested in cultural histories, just because they take up things that you don't question on a daily basis and say, oh, it hasn't always been this way. You know, that that's just fascinating. I, I really enjoy doing them. And, and this book is absolutely full of these sort of little snippets that you can sort of bring out and, and throw into conversation here or there. <laughs> so we recommend it, but we maybe don't say put it in your bag when you're when you're traveling. It's not going to be much use to you. <laughs> yes, it's, it's not a practical guide, but it is, you know, it's a, a full of arcane trivia why not why not that sounds great well cal flynn many thanks for talking to us today thank you still to come on the show the evolution of the artist ai weiwei from chinese revolutionary insider to social activist and thorn in the side of china's ruling class And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Today we're going to look into the life, history and work of a world-renowned artist, Ai Weiwei. Did you know, for instance, that he's a skilled player of blackjack or that he used to work as a pavement artist in New York? Me neither, but there are other, much more serious strands to his life as well, of course. His memoir, A Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, The Story of Two Lives, One Nation and a Century of Art Under Tyranny, is reviewed for us this week by N. Lian Kong, and we're delighted to have N. here with us today to talk us through this fascinating story. N., thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So the subtitle of the book mentions two lives, one is his, obviously, but but who does the other one belong to? Yeah, so the first half of the book is told through the life of his father, the renowned modernist poet Ai Ching. And, you know, for Ai Weiwei, you know, certainly in, in the first half of the book, he's piecing together the history of a nation through his father and his relationship with his father and navigating the extremes, you know, the extremes of, of a revolutionary era. Um, it was particularly the extremes of the Cultural Revolution. So, you know, this was a period of incredible turmoil. So many families, of course, but, you know, it really marks the lives of so many artists of that, um, so many Chinese artists of that generation navigating the extremes of the Cultural Revolution. would see their sort of literati parents thrown out into the streets. They would be uh, shipped off to farming, remote farming communes. For so many artists of that generation, you can really see it's imprinted on the work that he went on to produce. And, and of course, you know, I think with Iowa, certainly his, the work he produced in the 90s, um, there is this 
uh, navigation between the chaos of the Cultural Revolution um, and then, you know, in a way, the chaos that followed in the post-Mao reform era, era of getting rich very quickly, to the extent that China grew into the second, the, the world's sort of second largest economy. So I think in the most famous works, I think the works that people possibly most well acquainted with, um, there's lettings of Han Dynasty and Smash on the Floor, or defacing them with the Coca-Cola logo, um, you know, at least one reading of, of, of such works is that trying to draw some kind of connection between um, the, the lives they lived uh, during the revolutionary era um, and then the um, sort of road towards capitalism after that. To bring you back to his father's story, it was a very, it was a very uh, quick and sudden fall from grace, wasn't it? He went from being a real kind of insider um, to yes. being pushed out to the furthest margins and taking his, his, his young family with him. Yes, it's interesting because I, uh, I knew that Ai's father is, uh, you know, sort of renowned poet in China. Um, I didn't until reading the memoir. I really have a feel for um, just how well acquainted he was with the, you know, the leading figures of the time. Um, so you know, you have him basically eating bacon and eggs with Mao in the case of Yan'an. You know, at one point he sort of meets his friend, um, who's the father of um, the of Xi Jinping. Um, and so it's interesting to look at Ai's lineage that way, I think. We call the, uh, the current figures in Chinese leadership and on the Politburo um, princelings, this, uh, the kind of heir, heirs to a red uh, revolutionary lineage. And, and in some ways, Ai belongs to that as well, in a, in a quite bizarre way. Um, it, mm-hmm. it explains, for instance, why I think um, certainly in the late 90s, early, early 2000s, he was able to really get away with quite a lot um, in, in China in terms of pushing the grey zone of what might be acceptable. Of course, that time in China felt a, felt a bit different. I think, you know, when I was living there and it felt that very different to, to how it feels now. I think there was a, an air of hope about what might be um, sort of politically and culturally uh, acceptable. Um, and so, you know, it, the work he was doing felt, uh, you know, a, a piece of that, really. Um, but there is, you know, I think, I think especially reading, reading through the memoir, there's, there's this idea that he comes from such a renowned family that, um, you know, there are costs to, I guess, um, touching something like that. Um, but of course, um, it's, uh, you know, the climate ch- has changed a lot and um, he, uh, you know, he's both a casualty of that and also, um, he, you know, certainly a, 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 the work he did around the, the Sichuan earthquake in, in 2008 uh, really, really pushed that. I was going to talk about the, the Sichuan earthquake um, in a minute. I just wanted to sort of emphasize the thing about his father that obviously that he was, as you say, uh, you know, very much an insider and, and from this very as you say, a sort of red aristocracy, but that, that didn't stop him getting um, um, getting sort of almost banished uh, and and having to live hand to mouth and undergo a lot of very painful and sort of degrading experiences, did it? Um, and, and I lived through a lot of that with him. Can you tell us about the time that um, his father decided to burn his books and the effect that that had on I? Yes, um... I th- the, he I narrates this, um, the, I suppose, a period of um, uh, uh, Red Guards going door to door, searching um, searching uh, sort of families' cl- uh, uh, collections of literature. Um, and like many others, I think, um, I's father uh, decided that it was best to 
burn his library. Um, and in the memoir, I sort of narrate, I away narrates this as a, um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the formative moments um, when, uh, you know, he feels uh, such a strength of feeling um, that, um, uh, you know, that's, that his, it explains, I suppose, his commitment to grand themes of, you know, truth, the truth seeking um, later on, the sort of defines how he he how he uh, wants to uh, produce art in the future um but it's you know i what's interesting about the book is that it's um you know the first half is is really compelling um because because it's um you know told through this really really fascinating mm-hmm. history um of the revolutionary era um of the um you know of of the of the, the experiences that the, the family went through and there's great horror there um you know it, it is it has sort of become a truism that you know artists of his generation um you know at least in the early works that they produced it's um you know the the, the, the really grappling with um the absolute chaos of being thrown out of the uh, sort of bourgeois uh families and lifestyles in you know, sort of a major capital city say um, and taken away and um, to, you know, live very different lives. And, and, and of course, you can see it in a lot of, um, a lot of the works they're going to produce. Um, and, there's, you know, there's absolute horror. So, you know, he does, there's, in, 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 the, in the first half of the book, he, you know, there are scenes where he might discover a, um, you know, a body hanging from the roof while he's playing hide and seek um, in, in exile. Um, just you know, little details that really you know really strike you. So uh, it, the, it's it's a funny genre like the artist memoir. So I just feel there's a kind of disconnect between that first half of the book, which really holds you, um, and then the second half where he, I suppose, you know, good, the um, Cultural Revolution ends. He is off to New York to um, study uh, art school. Um, and then it becomes this, I suppose, the, the, the difficulty of writing about the process of making art um, or, the, or the, just the difficulty of um, portraying it, really, because, it, you know, I guess ideas are thought up and then um, sort of swiftly put into action and then the sort of uh, very successful exhibitions held. Um, and that, I guess that, that those ideas of... Um, luck and failure and contingency that are so present in that in the in in, in the story of the first half of the book um i guess they're just you know living your life in in, in such a chaotic era um slips away and there's the yes i think in the you know the story really shifts um once you leave that that history behind but when he's in when he goes to to America, to, to New York. He wasn't like he wasn't a star pupil or a great success straight away, was he? Or was he? Um, I think what he was good at doing was, and, and this, you know, I, I think explains, um, you know, his, his success as an artist to some extent, um, and uh, his standing certainly within China from at the beginning, was that he was able to essentially become a kind of fixer or middleman. Um, he, you know, he really established himself, I think, in New York as this, as, you know, the, the sort of artist and exile and Chinese artists would sort of flock to him um, as, a, as a kind of meeting point um, for, um, 
city for for artists who'd gone abroad. Um, and he really took this back to Beijing when he um, when he moved back in the nineties. Um, so I mean, admittedly, he was still living with his parents in his mid thirties, um, and is sort of in a funny. He talks about his his mom mm. not being particularly pleased with the <laughs> long lines of uh, long long haired artists at the door uh, all the time. Um, but but seriously, I think he one of his strengths, I suppose, was to establish himself. Uh, you know, when he came back to China as this artist who had the, the sort of radical ideas that were were running through in New York, um, and could act as um, almost a, a sort of mentor to the, the nascent scene in Beijing, and and that really carried on. So even in the 2000s 2010s um his studio in um the the sort of suburban used to be a farming district of Beijing Chaochung Di um it kind of became a legendary place where you'd you'd you know if you if you like if you're interested in contemporary art you'd make that pilgrimage to visit him um and uh you know I think people joked about sort of paying your dues at the house of I. So um, he really, you know, I think he was able to really, um, es- you know, establish himself within the scene in that way. Well, also, and, and this is where um, you begin to see um, sort of signs within the within the, the second half of the book, but also with an eye to um, art produced for a Western audience. His studio has become a sort of centre, and as you say, he's 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 done the work, the kind of Coca Cola logos on the um, on the hand vases, and yeah, and then and then as you say, um, after the so he moves on to sort of international work and pushing at boundaries and things, and then and as you say, do you say there's a change after the earthquake in Sichuan in in two thousand and eight? So what what happened then? I mean, his work has gone through through many shifts, and I think actually to, for me, that's why he's such a compelling artist he's able to um he really is able to he has a sort of mastery of so many forms i think i was able to um say so many interesting things through so many different uh mediums but yes i think there uh, there have been an important shifts in his in his practice um and one uh you can absolutely see in the in the 2008 such an earthquake so um following this following the disaster he um really took it on himself to begin investigating um, stories of shoddy architecture linking um, reports of corruption um, to the to the ways in, in which these schools had been built and collapsed and um, you know compiling a list um, of all the uh, children who had who had died in an earthquake you know um, information that um, had, had not been publicly released um, so, you know, what was very moving is that I, I visited his studio, I think, in um, 2013, I think. Um, and all around the studio, um, uh, you know, were printed the names um, of, the, of the children who died in the earthquake. What, what's admirable is that he really, uh, and whatever you, your thoughts on him as an artist and, and where he's taken um, that kind of uh, political arts, there's no doubt that he really uh, took huge risks politically at that moment. And also, I think what maybe goes a little unremarked on, perhaps in Western commentary, is just how much he, you know, revolutionised the aesthetic form around around political arts in China. Um, so he produced um, 
he began producing uh, documentaries around around the aftermath of the of the earthquake. Um, and the aesthetics of this are sort of very swiftly produced, swiftly shot. Um, the cameraman um, is sort of shoving the lens in front of figures of authority. Um, the distribution of these films um, were made widely available, um, uh, you know, over the internet. Um, and it marked a, I mean, there's a long tradition of socially engaged cinema in, in China, um, but it marked, I think, a shift in perhaps in 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 how his peers were were um, making films uh, on these issues at, at the time, um, because they were I think um, you know the 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 production it would often be produced through uh, secretly filmed footage, um, and um, the the distribution of this was you know still still is sometimes quite quite underhand quite undercover one to one, so you know I think perhaps over here he's 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 well known for the films he's produced since he's left china um on the hong kong protests and uh, on the refugee crisis but i you know i do think there's a there's a shift in the uh, the aesthetics of um of these films he he was as you say pushing pushing hard especially after the earthquake uh, in sichuan to to put a focus on this and uh, pushing at the limits of of what what was allowed and then in fact they got him and he mm. was put in jail and as you say he was sort of it was almost eroded from from the Chinese art scene and so then moved abroad and this is where do you, you think his work changes again I mean as you're saying and the, the sort of international stuff he's doing now I mean in your piece you call it you say it, it comes close to disaster tourism I've struggled with this really because uh, you know part of this is actually um a I guess uh, growing a bit older with this kind of art for me Iowai is really synonymous with with how I I understand contemporary art because um it's his epic installations like the sunflower seeds that take modern years ago that you know in some, in some ways was some, some of the first you know monumental installations contemporary art that I'd seen really it was a it was a gateway into it when I first sort of looked at his work more closely I visited him in Beijing as I was writing on um Sort of Chinese independent filmmakers at the time. Uh, at the time, was I was working more on politics and political journalism. You know, there were there were th- absolutely things that you know his subject absolutely spoke to me. Um, you know, he was his his uh, activism seemed you know absolutely ad- admirable. Um, you know, I was enthralled really. Um, and I think it's it's that moment when you are. I talk about this at the piece, but it's that moment when you're walking around. Um, like an art world party with uh, swigging champagne around one of his sort of inflatable refugee boats that you think, hmm, um, this isn't quite what I thought it was. Obviously, um, you know, we're all complicit in this as well. Um, but yes, I think, um, you know, it's also, there's also the, the, the dilemma of the exile, um, you know, the, the, the sort of Chinese dissident in exile, um, the, you know, the politics... I suppose that the political game he was playing in China was was very compelling. It was, you know, it was kind of cat and mouse game of what's it, you know, what is what can I just push this? What's acceptable? 
Um, and it had real, as we discussed about the, you know, within the context of social cinema, it had real effects in terms of um, politics and form. The work he has produced, whether it's the, the uh, Hong Kong protests um, or the uh, European refugee crisis, I suppose the idea of um, the authority he's standing up to is, is, you know, is far less clear. And, to, and in some of the works he's produced, um, it seems like the subjects, perhaps refugees, become you know, aestheticized subjects in the gallery um, that he then can be disposed of once the, once the show closes. Um, so I do, you know, I do feel that perhaps explains um, why, you know, the, the, the works he's produced uh, in, in exile um, in Europe um, have, uh, well, felt very problematic um, in comparison to, yeah, his, um, his work in China. You say they, they've, they've been sort of almost, almost, you know, like, a, oh, I've got to react to the news type thing. Um, you also say near the end of your piece, for I, as for his revolutionary forebears, activist and aesthetic concerns have become one and the same. So has he come full circle, do you think? I think that's, you know, that's why I wanted to write, to write about him for you guys. Um, you know, it, I find there is something so compelling about him that, um, you know, whatever you think of um, the the, the direction um, of his art, um, uh, he, in a funny way, um, foreshadows how the art world thinks of, you know, it was, its taste in art these days. Um, art that basically is more than art or offers, can offer something more than art. Art that um, is evidence, it's testimony. Um, if you look at even just the shortlist for the Turner Prize, um, it's, you know, these are collectives which um, are, you know, producing art alongside what looks like various forms of activism. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for me, in, in many ways, the trajectory of his art mirrors that, um, that, that story, I guess, in the, in, in the contemporary art world over the last few years. And in a way, it, go, it goes back to, to, to Mao, doesn't it? That the declaration that art must serve the people. I, ironically, he's, he's kind of gone back to that, I suppose. Yes, that, that, you know, and, um, you know, his father also, in, in many of his writings, engaged with that idea. And I think even the work he's produced in China is a heavily didactic um, practice that, in, in, a, in a different way, of course, um, is bound up with this idea of, um, of art serving the masses. Um, it's why, you know, it, it, in many ways it explains some of his most loved, you know, uh, epic installations like the, like the Sunflower Seeds. And he, I think in 2007, he um, uh, produced this work called Fairy Tale for the, um, this German mega exhibition um, called Documenta, um, in which he shipped a thousand and one Chinese people uh, to the city of Kassel um, and asked them to just wander around for uh, several months um and so in these works you can see him working with the you know with Maoist iconography essentially with sunflowers and masses of people um there's an interesting sort of can, you know this goes back to um what we were discussing about these artists essentially uh grappling with um the uh, the the chaos but also the imagery of that time the essentially of the of the revolutionary era
what happened to the people who were part of the installation who had to wander around the town? <laughs> did they then just go home? And... <laughs> yes, I guess. I guess they did. Seems a great gig. Seems extraordinary. Very bold and an odd thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, talk, he talks about putting his open call. I think the open call went out online. Um, and, you know, he's, he, there was the logistics of organizing something like that are extraordinary. He's essentially having to sort out visas and accommodation for some people who um, didn't even have, you know, have a passport um, and uh, others who, you know, perhaps through the um, never even gone outside the you know, remote farming village. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it, 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 it does define a lot of the, a lot of the art um, you know, he would then go on to produce where it's logistically really impressive, um, but perhaps um, the po- politics of it um, are, you know, clear cut. There's a sort of message behind it um, that is hard to dispute. Um, and perhaps what I feel is that there's, you know, what it, perhaps what it comes down to, um, thinking about it, is that the, there's no risk. You know, he was taking taking great risk with, with his art in, in China with um, with the, with his filmmaking, um, and that feeling of um, um, that feeling is is a little lost in the ever greater, ever larger works he would go on to produce. In the end, Kong, many thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. have time for this week our thanks go to cal flynn and en liang kong thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin it's a bye for now from lucy dallas we'll be back next week with alex clark but it's a proper goodbye from me thanks to everyone for listening it's been a pleasure goodbye softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.